you guys here tonight. Um, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and um, I'd like to consider myself a man of prayer. And uh, this morning when I woke up, I was uh, doing some praying, mostly that um, the game would be canceled. And because um, this would have been the third Wednesday in a row that the, a significant Cardinal game would have been played on a Wednesday. And I'm all for sports and the Cubs. And um, so the Bible talks about God answering prayer. And uh, this is one of those uh, moments where I sit back and say that he's still doing that. And so glad that the game was canceled. It's a darn shame. And uh, it may benefit you Cardinal, uh, Cardinal fans because maybe Carpenter will be able to pitch on uh, short rest on Friday. So we'll see. I want to set a scenario, if I could, for you. You uh, come to a day where you have one of the worst days you've had in a couple months. Uh, things don't go uh, anyway or anyhow like you had planned. You um, wake up uh, after not a great night's sleep. Maybe the kids were restless, didn't sleep much. Uh, your boss was a little bit on edge for some reason. Um, they uh, proceeded to chew you out about something or the other. Uh, maybe uh, you and your, whether you have a wife or a husband, maybe there was a little bit of tension or conflict um, your dog died. Uh, I mean, whatever happened that day, you came to this day and it was just a horrible, it was just a bad day. But the hope is this. In that scenario, you have the evening off. So as bad as the day went, you come to a rare moment where you're looking forward to the evening because guess what? It's on that night, though it's rare. There's no uh, meetings. No one's coming over for dinner. Like everything is crystal clear uh, for you to do whatever you would wish. And so I would imagine that it's in that moment that you start thinking about how you're going to spend your evening. It's been a horrible day, like one of the worst in a long, long time. And so the decisions I would imagine that you make, the food that you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to watch, or what activity you're going to do, is all surrounding around these certain comforts that you seek after or that you've learned in the past this particular food, when I eat of it, it makes things all better. Uh, for me, that food is tombstone pizza. It heals all wounds. <laughs> Have you, it's like a sweet sauce. It's amazing. Have you had it? If there's one food that I could eat repetitively over and over and over in my life, it'd be tombstone pizza. I know it's the simple things in life. But tombstone, man, it's amazing. Okay? So whatever it is for you, there are certain comforts that in times of trial, tribulation, times when you're hurting, that they just seem to really pull you in. They seem to bring some semblance of my life's okay. Now the crazy thing about comfort is this, is your comforts and mine are incredibly different. Let's have a little talk about that. I think there's four categories in external comforts. Uh, the first is, is what is on us. Now uh, th this is clothing, accessories if you're a female, uh, accessories if you're a male that acts like a female. Um, these are things that that we wear. Now, I, I'm sure that some of you have uh, a particular clothing that you really, really enjoy wearing in public. The jeans that fit right, the shirt that w does whatever. I mean, just there, there's some kind of clothing. I'm more interested in the clothing that no one sees that you rock when you're at home and it's bed. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's that pajama that we turn to that we know no one's going to come knocking on the door. We know, uh, for me, I'm just going to be vulnerable with you. It's uh, definitely knee high business socks, a pair of mesh shorts. And my new rockin' shirt is it's like this oversized button-up. 
that just like, it just feels so good. Like you, you all have that, maybe it's one of those snuggle, snuggly, like what's those like blanket slash towel things? Snu- snuggy, like maybe you wear that. Um, but when we're looking for some external comforts, clothing, it seems, sometimes helps. Uh, the second category is this, uh, who is with us? So if you've had a wretched day, sometimes just who you're around. Maybe there's like this relationship or two that they've been consistent in whatever it is that has gone terribly wrong in your life. When they're there, it just seems like everything is better. Some of you guys are having a moment right now sitting next to someone. You're like, that's, that's you, that's me. And, you know, the music's playing behind you and you're going to hug later after the service. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome for that. Uh, now, the third is, is what is around us. So our surroundings. Uh, in other words, like, you know the uh, surroundings where you walk in and you instantly feel uncomfortable. Um, there's many of those uh, where I would walk into a particular situation and feel a bit awkward. I had one of those uh, this past weekend at Pulse. Uh, when I come home and my wife is hosting a shower, a female shower, and I, I always uh, take the, the children out of the home so that there's some semblance of peace and quiet there for the women. But there's always that moment where I have to come home and put them to bed. And it never fails. Like, I always come home at the moment where all of the women are in the, in the kitchen together. And I walk in with all three kids. And I just, though they're all like my friends, I just feel weird. I, like, don't know what to say. Like, I'm very personable and engaging, but for some reason, in that moment, I just feel incredibly uncomfortable. Like, I'm looking at all these women, and they're eating cake and punch, and I, I'm just not sure what to talk about, you know? And so I just grab the kids, I, like, mosey right through, and people have asked uh, Heidi before, like, is he okay? I just don't know what to do, right? But, but there's, other, there's other settings where you just instantly feel comfortable, like, this is home, this is where I should be the rest of my life. Uh, f- so for those of you that have a terrible day, you might turn to that. Lastly, uh, what is with us? Now, these are um, toys, possessions, uh, things that you turn to that seem in moments of trial and tribulation, the, the tangible things you can put your hands on that just kind of make, make things feel better. Now, uh, comfort is such an interesting thing to talk about because a majority of our life, it seems, is spent combating these difficult seasons with things that will help get us through. The problem is the Bible has a very interesting and poignant stance on comfort. And so in tonight's text, we get a chance to wrestle with it. Now, keep in mind of what we're coming out of. Last week, uh, some of you were here and you were anything but comfortable. Uh, We were talking about uh, hell and fire and all kinds of things that you would normally attribute to some sort of Uh, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames uh, presentation, but rather what we said last week is like we're going to talk about hell and fire because we're teaching the Bible, and so when it comes up in Hebrews, the book we're in now, then we're going to study it, we're going to teach it, not be scared of it, right? So last week we, we saw that and talked about that there is this hard line in response to Jesus. You're either, as he told the disciples, with him or against him. There's no in between. You can't sit on the fence. There's no gray area. Christ forces a response. And so the blessing of responding positively to the Christ is that there's this beautiful, as Scripture talks about, great reward, being with Jesus forever. I was uh, teaching at the MV on Monday night, and I said, listen, if spending an eternity worshiping God doesn't seem uh, interesting to you, then maybe you should reconsider what your thoughts are about heaven. I think people are still thinking like it's going to be your, you know, like all of your favorite things or something. 
People ask me all the time, so do you think you're going to see your grandfather in heaven? I'm always like, you know what, I'm not sure, but what I do know is I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm going to be that concerned about it. I'm going to be in the presence of an almighty, glorious God on my face, spending the eternity worshiping. And for me, I don't know about for you, but that excites me. I look forward to that day. I look forward to being in the presence of God and seeing Him in all of His glory and literally spending an eternity worshiping. That excites me, right? Well, what we saw last week is for those that don't respond positively to the person of Christ, things aren't going to go so well. You will spend your days and an eternity separated from God in what uh, the Scripture said in Hebrews fire. Now, uh, that wasn't like the most comforting of teachings. It's somewhat uncomfortable. But, but tonight, he comes back in, the writer does, with some interesting words of affirmation. So I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to close a Hebrews chapter 10 tonight, uh, get all the way through, uh, through verse 39. Next week, uh, we're having a massive baptism celebration. Eight folks next week are being baptized. It's going to be crazy. We're excited about that. Uh, we're going to start Hebrews 11. Listen to this. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 for 11 weeks. Uh, it's going to be crazy, a party, I like to say. Um, we're going to be hitting a lot of the major characters that Hebrews 11 talks about, so you certainly have something to look forward to uh, outside of the baptisms. But let's start here in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, and then we'll, as we do, break it down verse by verse. But recall, verse 32, the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so, uh, so treated, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your uh, property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming, uh, and the coming one will come and will not delay, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We'll talk about where that's quoted from, and finally in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. A great passage of affirmation, um, a big teaching tonight on comfort. So let's start here in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. One of the major themes of the Bible is remembrance. I know if we were to go around the room right now and just ask, like, how many of you would consider yourselves forgetful? I think it would be quite plentiful. I want to just spend a moment talking to you, though, like to those of you who would really consider yourselves forgetful. I think we need to distinguish the difference between forgetfulness and being careless. Uh, forgetfulness is that test that you study for over and over and over, I mean hours. And then you come to the moment, and, and uh, as many of you have had, you just had that blackout moment where you can't remember the answer. You were super prepared, you were ready to go, but you get to that moment of the answer and you're just like, I can't, like you're searching everywhere in your mind. That's forgetfulness. I'm missing a meeting. I know we like to use the word forgetful or I just forgot, but in my opinion, it's somewhat careless. I mean, you carry with you, uh, nor most of you, a, a little device that will give you like all kinds of bells and whistles alarming you to the fact that there's a meeting coming in 10 minutes. If you would just take the time to write something in there, you know what I'm saying? Or you carry a journal, or for some of you that are old school, write it on your hand, you know what I'm saying? Like take a Sharpie, figure it out. There's a difference between being forgetful and being careless. 
But this theme of forgetfulness and remembrance is a huge message of the Bible. One of my favorite examples is, is Abraham. Abram then, Genesis 12, God and him have this amazing conversation. Listen to this. Abraham is so overwhelmed by this conversation with God that he decides in Genesis chapter 12 to build an altar to the Lord. It's between Bethel and Ai, the place where he was. Next chapter, chapter 13, he comes back and he sees the altar that he had built before. And he is instantly brought back to that moment that God spoke with him. And what the Bible says in, in uh, chapter 13 is that he called on the name of the Lord because he remembered what God had done previously. When I taught that in our first year of the church plant, the thing that I said is, we have to remember to remember. We are so forgetful, and now I'll add so careless, that God is doing all of these phenomenal things all the time. And so the question for you is, could you recall all that God has done? And even more specifically in our text, the writer here wants who? The young Christians. Recall the former days after you were enlightened. This period where you came to faith. Recall, remember, bring back these first days where your faith was just alive. You remember those days? Those of you that walk with Christ now, you follow Him, serve Him. He's your Lord, Messiah. Remember those first days? Remember what they felt like, what they looked like, who was talking to you? I fear that um, we as the church aren't doing new believers a justice by encouraging those first couple months. In other words, uh, just uh, yesterday I was having a conversation with a new believer here in our church community, and I was sharing with him, I was like, dude, listen, you have to journal now because you will forget these awesome things that you're realizing, these great truths that you're wrestling with, these emotions that you're having to put in perspective. You need to journal now. Instead, what I see us doing as Christians is taking young believers and instead of helping them in the moment collect what God is doing in their life, here's what I see. I see a lot of us giving like what's this perceived wisdom. I talk to so many young believers now where I hear, and this person told me that, and this person told me that, and most of the statements that they were told is this. Dude, like, you better enjoy this because in like two months, it's all going downhill. You know what I'm saying? So it's like... It's going to come. You just better be ready for it. And it, it's, it's all of these statements of certainty where somehow like these older Christians are living vicariously through these new believers thinking that because that's what happened to them, then, then that's what happened to, to everyone. We'll experience the same thing uh, for the trips to Ecuador going again here in six months in March. Anyone who has already been will have this propensity to be like, oh, dude, and this relationship will be awesome, and this will happen, and it'll be crazy, and boom, 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 boom. And, and we're not letting the people experience it for themselves. What we need to do is continue to affirm and confirm the one thing we're certain of to new believers. And what's that? The character of God. That needs to be our conversation. Sure, we'll share wisdom and perspective. But we should never just give them this experience that we had thinking it will be the same for them. What will be uh, the same for them is the character of God. Are we together? That will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so with a young believer, we keep teaching, we keep encouraging the character of God. And so that as they recall those former days, what they're, rem what they're remembering is the power of the church. 
just feeding their heart and their mind with who God is. He's faithful. He's just. He's loving. He's gracious. Instead of all these perspectives. I think the problem is we just don't know what to do with them. So my encouragement with you is to remember your former days and the lack of encouragement that you had. But for these particular Christians, their former days were probably a little bit different than yours. These Christians, their former days, he says, remember when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So apparently this group of believers, at the onset of their faith, it was instantly met with a hard struggle. Now this is a term that's used in combat or even more specifically in the Greek an athletic event. So for those of you that uh, were in some type of athletic activity, and you can think of like the most intense moment where there was this battle like team versus team or man versus man, and it was just super intense. That's what he's talking about here. This hard struggle with sufferings. Now, I know uh, many of you who, when you came to faith, you experienced the reality of this. Because instantaneously, you were having to say goodbye, at least for a season, to all of these friends that you had accord. Like all of a sudden, there was this life shift. Now you believed in Christ and they didn't. And so most assuredly, hopefully, you had some follower of Christ tell you, listen, um, it's going to be tough to be around this group of people. Well, do you understand that to a Jewish audience, like this is not just friends, this is family. Like, if you make a decision to follow Christ, you're saying, in a sense, even in this culture, like, yeah, this whole, like, family ritual stuff thing that you guys got going on over here, uh, Jesus is way bigger than that religion, than that ritual, than all the stuff that you do. So I'm going to be following him now, but do you understand? The instant rift that that created was an instant suffering and trial for these new believers. So he's encouraging them after talking about not sitting in the gray, to recall your sufferings. And we'll discover why here in a second, but let's move on to verse 33. Specifically, you'll see there in the middle of the screen, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now, finally, I love this verse. I love this verse. I've always said all my life, like, what would be awesome and this may sound strange, what would be awesome is to die for Jesus, right? Like that would, that would just be, I was uh, talking with a brother about that, and we were just like affirming each other, like that would be so incredible to die for Christ. And then it just dawned on me, I may not have that chance now here in America, but give it 30 years. Like I've never had that perspective before, like maybe not now, but let's give it, let's give it a little while. Like what seems so culturally okay right now, kind of, Give it 30 years, friends, all of a sudden, like, the rubber may meet the road. And pretty soon being a Christian in our culture may not be so easy. But I love verse 33 because it's finally relatable. Because all of the texts in the scripture that talk about the early church dying for their faith makes us men especially get all fired up, right? Maybe some of you, at least three of you, okay? But for the rest of us, it's like, well, how can that ever happen in America? It's great to read the early church being crucified upside down, like that's kind of a nice picture, I guess. But in America, we're, that, that's never going to happen. But this is so relatable because see what it says. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Well, uh, publicly exposed, the term there is a theater term. 
And it it means to be made a spectacle of. Well, that we can relate to. Like maybe you haven't had a chance to die for your faith, but I'll guarantee you this, you've certainly had a chance to be made a public spectacle of. And here's how. I think some of you think that being made a public spectacle will just happen vocally. Listen, we talk all the time about how cowardice believers are. You think a believer is, is a coward, and then you think that somehow someone in our culture is going to really call someone out. It happens. Certainly there are exemptions. But that same cowardice that you feel about Christ is the same cowardice that a non-believer is experiencing in their own life. What I've seen, the persecution that happens being made a public spectacle, happens more behind your back. It happens more when you're in a setting with non-believers and you make a stand for the gospel, then all of a sudden you leave, you, you feel like is everyone's still wearing the smile that it's all okay, but the second you leave, all of those non-believers then, they begin to talk. You may never even know you are persecuted against, but let me tell you this. You keep making a stand amidst those who don't believe, and that will be the case for you. The problem is where you mostly make a stand is with other believers, so you never even know this. You're not around people who don't believe. But this being made a spectacle of in public, I would assure you, happens for most of you behind closed doors when after you leave and you're gone and you've made your stand for the gospel, they begin then to talk. Then he says this, and I love this here in the middle of verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So there's this example where you made your stand. But then he's encouraging them, you actually were encouraging to others when they made their stand. So someone stood up. For their beliefs didn't sit back in cowardice, saw an opportunity to draw the line in the sand, and then you associated yourself with them. And when you stood with them, guess what that did? It made you with them. Uh, Peter kind of struggled with this, right? Jesus in his last days, he's being persecuted, he's certainly being reviled, he's certainly being verbally and soon uh, physically abused. Uh, Peter not only denies the name of Jesus to a servant girl, but then he simply runs from the cross. He's fearful. He doesn't want to be associated with the one who's being persecuted. Does it dawn on anyone else as we're just getting into this? That all of this is happening with new believers. Some of you guys have been Christians 10, 11, 12 years. And you will let someone fall on their sword so quickly. I mean, you'll sit there, and someone will make their stand against judgment, against gossip, against sex, against this relationship that's hurting, whatever it is. And it's much easier to sit back, let that Christian fall on their sword, and then after everything's done, then you come over, you're like, dude, that was off. Like, way to go, bro. That was, yeah, where were you at a second ago? Like, where were you at when, like, there was this opportunity for two of us to say, like, like, yes, no, the gospel is more. But there you sat in the corner, let me fall on my sword, and then you came over and gave me a high five. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about young, new believers who were so passionate about what Christ had done in their life 
that they were willing not just to take a stand on their own, but also associate with others who were taking their stand. A young believer. He's saying, remember when you were like that. So I say the same to you. Remember when you were like that. Does it seem far away? When you actually had passion? When you had this overwhelming sense of joy for what God had done in your life? Did it seem and does it seem so long ago? He's encouraging them, recall those days. When there was this innocence, this almost naivety that just allowed you just to go for it. Full bore, remember that. Then he gets more specific here in verse 34. You didn't just do these two things, but also you had compassion on those who were in prison. Now, this is nice. Uh, you may think like this means writing letters, um, which would be fine to those who are in prison. Uh, more specifically, what the, what the writer here is saying is, in ancient times, you had the ability, at least in this context, to uh, take food. In fact, you were the ones often feeding them. If you didn't bring food, they would die. If you didn't bring clothing, they would be cold. If you bring water, they would thirst. And so, not listen, not just did you make your stand, not just did you associate with others who were making your stand, you actually had the audacity to walk into prisons where people were being held because of their stance for the gospel, and you were sitting there with the guards watching you, giving them food, nurturing them back to health, making sure they had water. You were doing the ultimate. You were associating with those who were incriminated. And obviously you can make the equation A plus B equals C, then that often would incriminate you as well. Now, he opens with all of this dialogue. But my friends, things are about to get super, super tasty. Look at this. Middle of verse 34. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Okay, okay. So before we're kind of talking about relationships and stances, um, have you guys ever been with a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old that are learning to drive? Have you guys have been with one of these people? I mean, it's, it's almost near, I mean, it's like the, the scariest thing you'll ever do. You know what I mean? I thought uh, roller coasters were scary. Back when I was a youth pastor, uh, parents would often solicit me to help uh, teach their children how to drive, which I soon learned why they would do this. I mean, I was pretty much signing my life away, like every time I stepped into the vehicle. But one night I remember uh, being with this uh, young teenage uh, boy, and uh, it was at night, and for some reason I decided to go onto a busy two-lane highway, right? Now, busy two-lane highways are just scary in general because they're, they're two lanes. You know what I'm saying? Like, like the friction is right here. I mean, we're, we're, we're mono-e-mono, like someone makes a little bit of a mistake, and we're no dice really quick. And I remember being in this car, like just constant car after car after car, thinking to myself, like this guy... He gets distracted for one second. I mean, we're going through the windshield here. Like, this is not going to be good. And I was thinking about this earlier and how life feels sometimes. Like, it's just this constant, like, there's never, a, there's never an end to the pursuit. It's, it's a busy two-lane highway. I mean, the, like, the, nights, the, the lights, they never stop. I'm driving, I'm continuing to go. It feels like at, at any second my life could just be over and there's just this constant pursuit. What he's saying here is you actually have, have joy in the plundering of your property. My question is like, as these things are starting to come to you and as you accept them, when do you have joy just in general? 
We're talking about, in this case, of men and women who had joy in the plundering of their property. What I want to know from you is, as life is just coming at you over and over constantly, how much joy do you have in its acceptance in general, let alone suffering? In other words, today, like all the things that came at you, possibly hundreds, this conversation you weren't expecting, this little thing that didn't happen, this, how many of those things did you accept with joy? There's this assumption about believers in the Bible that there's been something internal that has completely changed. In fact, the Bible calls it that we're a new creation. Part of the reality and the evidence of being a new creation are men and women now who, as life is just keep and constantly coming at them, they're accepting the tension with joy because they have this different perspective. Look at what he says here in the end of verse 34. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your, pop, uh, of your property. Plundering is just kind of a fun word. What does that mean? People are taking your property. Well, what does that mean? That, that means we got no place to stay. Like it's one thing to say like you shouldn't talk about Jesus anymore. And it's another thing to take your stuff. Right? They're plundering your property. Look, look at this. Because of this, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, life was coming at you and you accepted the plundering of your property with joy. Why? Because you had a perspective that you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. You had something that was worth more and something that would last longer. That's what you knew. And so if someone wants to take your property, it doesn't matter. It's my property. I have something better and worth more, and it's going to last longer. This crazy perspective. And so they accept it, and they receive it in joy. Cause me to think about this. Next slide. Uh, put up my graph there if you could, if I pulled it in. Now, um, our life is constantly being faced with these challenges, these tensions, even these opportunities to celebrate. The writer wants his readers to recall these early days when all of this was coming and they saw this bigger, greater perspective. But the problem for you and I is this, is accepting these temporary comforts is so much easier. In other words, boom, here comes the struggle. Well, guess what? I'm just going to like go next to the fire and put on Mary, uh, Mary Banilow. What's his name? Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow, yeah. Put on a little song, cook some s'mores by myself. Like, this is going to be beautiful. And, and, and then all of a sudden, like, like, that brings comfort. The more you reach out for these temporary comforts, and the more you think then that these have something that they provide for you, what ends up happening is it just stops here. Your pursuit of God stops. Because all of these things are filling temporary comforting senses in you that you need. So you turn to this person. You turn to this example. You turn to this vice or sin to provide you comfort. And what happens is you never get to joy and peace that only come in Christ. Well, what's happening for our readers here is they are not even looking at the temporary comforts. They're looking completely past it, and they're looking to the joy and the peace that's found in Christ. And so guess what's happened? They're like, go ahead and take my property. It doesn't mean anything. 
What means something is what I have in Christ. So here, like, take my property. In fact, take my life. It doesn't mean anything but where we find ourselves. It's constantly sitting in these things that are so temporal because they're so right in front of our face and they're so easy to grab. So I'm just asking you tonight, what are those comforts that you're constantly and consistently leaning on? People, things, possessions, toys. Those things stand in the way of living this reckless abandon, I'm going for it, give me Jesus or give me death kind of mentality that was embraced by these young believers who are our readers. Guess what I'm saying? It's a beautiful perspective. I love in Acts 5, the um, apostles and Peter are around the Jewish council. The council and them are talking about the gospel. They've been arrested. Verse 41, uh, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, this is right after they're beaten, by the way, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They're just beating. They walk out after being beaten. And what do they say? Thank you, God, that we were counted worthy. I don't care about my comforts. In fact, I'm ready to give them all up because I have something that's better and lasts longer. So you can go ahead and do whatever you want to this body. You can revile it. You can abuse me. It won't matter. What I have in Christ is so much more significant, right? It's a beautiful picture. And so it causes them to say this in our next verse. Next slide. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, quick question. Have you ever thrown something away that you didn't mean to? It's one of the worst things you can ever do in your life, right? And you have to go dumpster diving. Have you ever had to do that? Okay, maybe it was a wedding ring or, you know, some kind of heirloom that your family had had for 80 years and you accidentally give it a nice, you know, hip to the trash. Um, it's one of the worst moments because, and especially for those of us who are like me, who are like clean freaks, like pretty, you know, and I'm like putting on the gloves and the gas mask trying to go after this little nugget of thing that I put in the bottom of the trash and I'm having to sift through like all this kid food and nasty stuff. What happens when we throw away our confidence is like we're constantly having to retrieve something that was meant to always be had. So when he says, like, don't throw it away, what he's saying is, listen, I've learned from experience, don't throw it away because you're going to want it back. Like, don't let go of it because trust me, you're going to find yourself in the realization of the power of the gospel where you're going to want to go after it again. So it's much easier just to maintain it. Hold on to it. It's a precious gift. And so I want to make uh, this statement, and I think this uh, uh, surmises it better. Temporal comforts kill confidence in Christ. Next slide. Because we start believing that they are enough to bring peace. Now listen to this. This is huge. The more you latch on to your comforts, your temporal comforts, and they could even be, some, I mean, sinful stuff, the more you latch on to them, the more you start believing that these things are the gospel itself. And so we find ourselves riddled in a culture that has so much access to comfort that we're starting to believe that these things are actually the gospel. 
Because they give us this sense inside that all is okay. And when it fails, then we just reach out and grab it again and grab it again. And our life then is just compacted with these temporal things when there's something so much better. We start to believe that. The next slide. And we forget that they aren't. We start to believe that that they're enough. And because we're not remembering what Christ has done in our life, we start forgetting that, that they don't have anything, they, that, they don't, that they don't have value, that this toy or this relationship or this thing actually never provided me anything in the first place. But it's when we start believing that, that all of a sudden we find ourselves complacent. And listen, before we move on, his readers were in great danger of becoming complacent in their faith. His readers were in great danger of leaving this former way where they were on fire, passionate, didn't care about anything else. And now all of a sudden they find themselves in this place where comfort and complacency all of a sudden are finding themselves at a place of temptation. So he's like, listen, don't throw your confidence away because the moment you start losing confidence in Christ, then you will cower, then you will shrink back, and then all of these temporal things will become the gospel. Let me ask you this. Have the temporal things become your gospel? Become truth? Is that the pursuit of your life right now? Just one more thing to make me feel good for five seconds, five minutes, one day. Goes on to say this in verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I've had so many conversations recently with people who are getting so, as uh, I would describe, burnt out. And I'm not talking about in work, I'm just talking about in their faith. It's like they're, they're trying to run this race of pace like it's a 400 like it's a 100 meter dash instead of recognizing it as a marathon it's long we need endurance because it's a grind let's just call it what it is it's a grind i mean you wake up just like i do so many days not feeling it like god how can i make this happen today i'm not feeling loved i'm not feeling encouraged i'm not feeling like seeking you and it's in that moment what he says, listen, it, it's, we, we are in need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, then, my friends, the blessing comes. Now, the great picture we have, someone who's done the will of God, someone who's experienced the sufferings because of what they believed is certainly Christ. This great picture, portrayal, reality of Jesus fully enduring fully living in the will of God, taking on all kinds of abuse and sufferings and doing it for the glory of God. And then in the end, he's ascended and sits at, at the right hand. My, my friends, for those of you that are burnt out tonight, struggling, confused, hurt, listen, maintain your confidence in Christ. That causes you to rest instead of feeling that need to keep sprinting. You won't last like that. That's why when I talk to young believers, I'm just like, listen, listen, listen. Apart from what anyone will tell you, it's a race of pace. Like you think all of a sudden that God's sanctifying work is going to make you like Jesus all the way tomorrow? 
Like that becomes your life now. And it's a lifelong process, whether it lasts you a week because he takes you home or until you're 80. Then we see a quote here in this uh, verse 37 and 38 from Isaiah chapter 26 and Habakkuk, all of your favorite books of the Bible. Um, Now these uh, verses are quoted here and I want to explain why they're loosely quoted. For yet a little while and the coming one will uh, come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. Again quoting from Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2. Now uh, these uh, passages are quoted for this purpose. In uh, the 7th century B.C., uh, the prophet gets this phenomenal picture of the judgment that will come on Israel at the hand of the Chaldeans. He's uh, told to write it on two tablets, and he's told to make sure that people understand in this message, like, listen, you will face this judgment. So you have a choice here. You either come, repent, turn, or you sit and be judged. Well, the picture and the reason why our writer uses it here is, especially at the end of verse 37, and the, one co- and the coming one will come and will not delay. In other words, listen, endure. Be patient. He's coming back. Like all of these things that I know are so difficult to live in and to structure your life through, listen, he's coming back. You have to believe it. You have to sit in that confidence. I know it's so easy to latch on to the comfortable and the temporary and the things that are so convenient. But listen, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. You have to believe it. And if you believe it, it changes everything. Verse 39, I love this. He closes uh, chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See what he does there? You see what he does there? You like that? He encourages, affirms, and then he says, But we are not of those. We, my friends, we're of something different. We're not shrinking back. We're not confused. We're we're of a different breed. We're not looking at temporal things. We're actually sitting in things eternal. That's who we are. After he's just, I mean, he just blasted them in some senses. And then he comes back and just gives them a great word of affirmation. We do things when we're kids that we never do 10 years later. Agree? Let me say that again. We do things when we're kids we never do 10 years later, right? One of my favorite things to do when I was seven, it was called butt boarding. Now, um, I hate skateboarding. Any of you guys skateboarders? Okay. Okay, that's good. It's uh, growing, um, growing here in St. Charles. Um, now, when I was younger, I, I didn't have the coordination to skateboard. So I invented the new sport. It's called butt boarding. It's pretty great. I had this yellow, uh, very skinny uh, board. And so... I came up with this great idea. Here's our plan. We're going we're gonna to go up to the top of this hill, and we're going to sit on the skateboard, and then we're, we're just going to go as fast as we can. And, you know, I thought in my seven-year-old mind, like, this would be brilliant, right? And so you're sitting there, and listen, being a kid, isn't it just awesome? Like, you haven't calculated all of the things that, you know, you're just like, you see a hill, and you see a skateboard and wheels, and you just think, like, this is how we're going to do it right now. And so I sat on this board, and you know, the first time, and y- your heart's kind of pumped because you're a little bit scared because you can see that you're going to pick up some velocity, though you didn't know what that word meant at that time. You just knew you were going to go fast. And so sure enough, like we go, we go railing down this hill, and I'm trying to give you a, a good picture of what this is. It'd be like, it'd be about the distance of one lap around a track. So we're not talking about a hill here uh, that's a nice little, no, we're talking, this is a huge hill down our street. So I'm the first guy to go, and I go railing down this hill. 
Well, it was about halfway down that I realized, like, I'm not sure how I'm going to stop this thing, you know? (laughs) But again, like, listen, listen, as a kid, you're not, you haven't calculated up there that. But about halfway down, as you're holding on for dear life, and you've just realized you may die right now, (laughs) I'm I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know how I'm going to stop. There's no way I'm going to stop. And so what ends up happening, what ended up happening my first time, is I went down, and there were no grass either. And so you just spill on concrete. And so I scrape, you know, everything. And you get up, and you're like, that was incredible, you know? <laughs> and your buddies, your buddies are seeing you bleeding, and, and they go for it too, because they're, they're like, they're dumb enough just to roll it, you know? And then I go, I walk back up, and we spent like two years doing that. It was awesome. I mean, my knees are still damaged from it. What I love about being a kid, though, is there's just this innocence, just this sense in you that just wants to go for it. Like, I'm, ju- I'm just not going to be burdened or held back. I know I haven't calculated all the risks, but I, I have calculated this, is that I just, I just want to do it. He says, remember the former days, recall those, because there was a sense in you that didn't care. There was this passion in your heart that actually believed that God was just God and that he wasn't just some answer to your problem, where he was Lord, Messiah, Savior where it wasn't just some like card that you were going to pull out every once in a while because it was convenient. There was a day, there was a time in you when he was just God, where you could, at the thought of him, just fall down on your face in the, his presence because you just desired to worship. That's what you thought. Recall those days. Recall those days when it didn't matter what was at the bottom of the hill. You were just going for it anyway because you desired to serve him more than anything else. But then guess what? What, what cut in? Then all of a sudden you got about halfway down and you started reaching out for all these things to make you comfortable and to stop the pursuit. And so you got about halfway down, and then you figured you could rear, uh, you could you could go off the path, and then all of a sudden you could start grabbing at these things that were so temporal that you thought could provide, and they stopped your journey. No, you have to keep going. He's your rest. He's the ultimate comfort, and that's what Scripture says. He's the God of all comfort, but His comfort isn't temporal. His comfort isn't seen in some knee highs, some mesh shorts, and a nice shirt, or the right comfort food, or the right song. His comfort is eternal. His comfort lasts forever. And so if just for a moment, my friends, if we're ever to live like the person of Christ, if we're ever to embrace sufferings, if we're ever to recall our former days where we were just like, let's just go for it, we have to start reaching out for what's right in front of our face and look up at the reward. That's where we need to start reaching. And it's in that picture and that portrayal where all of a sudden the ridicule And the chance to make our stand. And the chance to say, no, no, you don't understand. He's God to me. He's not just this thing that I hear about when I go to church. He is my God. And so if you want to talk against him, I have to take a stand in love and grace. But guess what? We're sitting back in cowardice because we've calculated the risks too much. We're not naive and innocent anymore. We've lost that. We've become too careful. And that's why he says, recall those days. There was just this faith in you that really believed that he was who he said he was. Get back to that. He's your great reward. Come back to that. Listen, please, don't throw away your confidence. You have to rest in him. And now do you understand that chapter 11, the most famous chapter in all of Hebrews, now comes and says, by faith, by faith, by faith. We're going to spend 11 chapters in it because he's saying all of these people embrace that. They had their struggles, but they just went for it, trusting that God 
would really be God. And so I'm just saying to you, for those of you that think that somehow you can flesh out this walk with Christ and maintain temporal comforts, that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is embraced by men and women who say all of these things I need not. What I really need is him. He's my treasure. He's eternal. And because of him, then I'm just going to go for it. And so I pray that God would cause us to suffer well. I pray that he would pull you out of your cowardice. And I pray in your opportunities to make a stand, that you would stand firm. And I pray that when other Christians make their stand, that you would stand with them. And I pray when we see other Christians being persecuted, not just here, but all over the world, we would claim victory in the fact that Christ is enough for all of us. Let's stand together, huh? Just the last uh, thing that I would love to leave you with tonight is the perspective um, that God, in all of his glory and all that he is, has potentially for you just become the poster on the wall. You just become kind of that, that thing, that nice, convenient figurehead that you look to in times of distress and trouble. Let me just encourage you with this church. When he's your God, that he's everything. The Bible says that Jesus is in all and is all. There's no need to sit in anything else. My prayer tonight is that God will become your God. To take him off the wall, the picture of who he is will be all-consuming. So, Father, I pray that as life comes at us, as sufferings occur, as trials, God, are just burdening us, I pray, Father, that you would give us courage to stop reaching for the things that are so easily grabbed. Give us courage tonight to rest in you no matter what it means for us now. Give us courage, God.